Thank you so much, June, for reading God's Word for us. Thank you, Lynn and the musicians, for leading us in worship of God. And we truly thank God for bringing you to join us. Every time we listen to God's Word, it brings light into our hearts, but more than light, it offers us eternal life. So I do not know how you have been spending your time all around the world, but here in the protection and security in Singapore, one of the things that we can still do is still go for our walks, and I've enjoyed my walks, mainly out there at East Coast Park, sometimes at Kalang River, sometimes at Marina Barrage, different places, sometimes at Bukit Timah, sometimes at the Botanic Gardens. One morning I went, and I was really disturbed by what I saw. And what disturbed me? It was the horrors of finding rubbish on the beach that I've never seen before, so much. And this is a, a picture, and can you see it's me taking the picture, the shadow on the right-hand side? And I just couldn't believe it, so much rubbish. It was on a Monday, and I thought it was the leftover from the weekend, from the Sunday, Saturday. And how could, how could we be so careless? How did we become so toxic? And you can see the cleaner at the back in that photo, you catch a picture of him. And all that on the beach, washed by the waves coming in more and more. And then by evening I went for my walk, and this is what I saw. Bags and bags and bags. And we think of ourselves, we are a first world nation, like so many nations, but we are a first world nation, we are educated, have, but have we become so unenlightened? The answer could be possibly yes, or truly yes. I'm not wrong. I thought I saw it was the same cleaners, the same sweepers of the parks and the beaches from morning to night. The same person just cleaning it. Can you see that? How on earth did we become like this? I was just watching something like last night in regards to promoting and encouraging us here in Singapore to be a lot more careful, uh, to be more, a lot more socially conscious. And this was a 65-year-old cleaner, a Malay man. He cleans our public housing estate. And he said in one of those clips, in promoting this, please, this is my, 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 my plea. Please help uncle. I'm old already. I'm 65 years old. Don't litter so much, Singaporeans. Every day I go, I find the rubbish in the same places. It's as if people are just, you know, just wanting to give me a job. How do we become so careless, so hardened? How do we become so poisonous in our lives? not to care for the environment, not to care for how we deal with our litter and just make it somebody else's, our rubbish is somebody else's business or somebody else's job. I'm sure the whole world has tuned in to what? Has tuned in to what happened in Beirut. Did you read about it? Did you hear about it? Did you watch it on the news? And what was it that we watched? 2,750 metric tons of ammonium nitrate Material used to make explosives stored where? So close to residential areas in, in Beirut itself, in Lebanon. And I don't know whether the figure still stands, 150 dead, and the, and the count is rising, 200 dead, 300,000 displaced. And what struck me was not just the numbers of fatality, the numbers displayed, but the effects of this was felt about 200 kilometers, 240 kilometers from Beirut. They felt it, they heard it. For us here in Singapore, that means for many of us who travel to Malaysia for business or for holidays, for many of us who travel to Malaysia for our church camps, that means if explosion took place here, you would have heard it all the way in Malacca, Malacca, where we've been for many of our church camps. And we ask ourselves, how did people become so careless? And it goes on in life. We have to ask those questions. And here is one of the most saddening that we've just read recently in Singapore, a case that hit the courts and then hit the news. And what was it? The horrors of our disconnected lives. A five-year-old boy 
who was scalded with water again and again four times between October 15 and October 22nd, a week in 2016, in their one-room flat by their parents. And they took seven hours before they sent him to hospital, before after he collapsed after the incident. And then he died from the horrific skull injuries covering 75% of his body on October 23, 2016. The parents also committed other acts of abuse against the boy, including confining him to a pet cage. That's the pet cage. So imagine a five-year-old boy being forced into that cage, pinching him with a, with a pair of pliers, hitting him with a broom, and burning his palm with a heated spoon. Understandably, the parents were jailed for 27 years. And even that is debatable for many people. And so we need to ask the question as we begin our time, whether you go for a walk in a park, walk on a beach, whether you're just a resident in the city, you do not know of the harm that is there, whether you live in a home, how did we become so toxic internally in our lives, externally with our hands and our actions, in word and deed? How do we become so toxic in our hearts and our homes? And that question is a desperate question we need to cry out sometimes. And just in case you think it doesn't happen, that, 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 that couple is totally unusual. They must suffer from some psychological problem. Yes, it's extreme. But you and me, you and me are not excused from at times when we are pushed to the limit where you discipline a child, where you pinch a child maliciously when no one is looking. When you have that delayed response to your parents and sometimes to your aged parents who live with you, they call for help, they call for food and you delay the food deliberately as a form of punishing them. All the things that happen behind closed doors, all the things that happen in our hearts, how on earth did we become so toxic? How on earth? God in His Word tells us how very clearly in this epistle that we are listening to. And I pray that we listen not simply, not, we don't just read the Word of God, but listen to Him speak His Word into our heart of our past, of our present, and what can take us from a horrendous past to a new present and eternal future. And all this is found in the person of Christ Jesus. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, And you, who once were alienated, he describes this in three ways. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you how, <coughs> in his body of flesh, by his death, to do what? That the love of Jesus, that the suffering of Jesus, that the sacrifice of Jesus sent by God is to present you and me who are so toxic and poisonous runaway beings to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is the good news, the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so in just two verses or two sentences, if you're new to Christianity, you read the Bible, we call them verses, you call them sentences. It describes our past. How on earth did we become like this? It's because we live disconnected lives. <coughs> and from those disconnected lives, it's the horror and the hurt and the harm we inflict on others because we have turned against God. And now I'll reconcile lives by chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you seek, and the Greek word, the root word is zetio, the things that are above. Why? Because now there's a new ruler of the universe. It's not Satan. It's not you and me. Totally in charge of your life. Whatever you want to do, you do. <coughs> Whatever you want to think, you think. Whatever you say, you say. Whatever you... 
whatever, you are the whatever person and I'm the whatever person because we think there is no God and if there is a God, He doesn't know what's happening in my heart. He doesn't know what's happening in my hands. And if He does know, I can always explain it away. Christ has come. He's finished His work. He's absorbed God's wrath. He's forgiven us of sin. And now, He's been raised to sit at God's right hand. And in reply, in response to this, we are to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And things on the earth, we still think that we rule ourselves and there are no repercussions for living our lives without God. There are repercussions. The repercussions of living without God is broken relationship with God and broken relationship with the Brokenness everywhere. Horrors and hurts and harms everywhere. And when are you going to own up to this? that you are a nightmare to live with, then I'm a nightmare to live with because we spend our life convincing ourselves we live such glorious lives without God. That's a lie of the highest and greatest magnitude. And so, what, it means, what does it mean to seek Christ? That He's now enthroned at God's right hand, seated at God's right hand with supreme authority over all things. The implication of this Whatever you do in life, hey, in word and deed, now you do everything, whatever you do in word and deed, you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. If you do not know, friends, this is the new life we have in Christ. Which means, Paul is saying in a nutshell, that every part of our life, is, all, is to be lived increasingly by referring to Jesus. Jesus, I, I don't know how to handle my job. I don't know how to handle my money. I do not know how to handle my singleness. I do not know how to handle my marriage. It looks like I'm on, it's on the rocks now. I do not know how to look after my aged parents. I do not know how, how to handle the economy. I, I do not know what's going to happen to me. Every area of your life is to be lived in reference to Him and then in deference, which means surrendering our lives and submitting ourselves and saying, you are God and I'm not God. You are Lord and I'm not Lord. You are Saviour and I'm not the Saviour. It's to acknowledge Jesus' rightful rule over us. And so we saw in chapter 3 onwards, if we set our minds on things above, we seek the reality that Christ rules the universe on God's behalf, that Christ rules the world and Christ rightly rules your life and my life. The first thing it changes, it changes our sexual lives. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed. All of that which is idolatry. So if you believe in Jesus, the first change that comes upon your life and my life is that the addiction that you have to sexual immorality, to impurity, can be ended by the Lordship of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit in you. Believe that? It changes our anger stories, our speech stories. You are to put to death right? the anger, the rage, the malice, the slander, and the malicious language, the obscene talk against your neighbour, the bad mouthing of them. All that belong to our pagan past when you rule your own life and I rule my own life. And not a week passes, friends, where somebody gets really hounded on, in the virtual world and we just had a case in which somebody was still hounded. They, they had to come off social media. And that's the world we live in. We think we are nice people, but just look at the rubbish out there against each other. <laughs> we are just cowards giving our opinions of each other and dragging, defaming each other out there in social media. There are racial and class stories, and then our church stories. Today, the section we are covering is Jesus as Christ makes all the difference to our marriage stories, to wives and to husbands, to our family stories, to children and to parents, and then to our work stories. And the work arrangement of that time when Paul the Apostle wrote this was master and slaves. It's not here anymore in our modern day world. We think so, but the principles are still there for us. In short, if you've been listening to this, through the weeks, the question being asked is this, Bringing Jesus into anything changes everything. 
Bringing Jesus to anyone changes everyone. So do you believe that only God can save you? And only God's appointed ruler, the Christ, can save you? Or do you still believe as you embark on sexual sin on your gadget and your phone, that you can still worm your way around, squirm your way around and explain away your sin, that you can still delete history and pretend to your husband, to your wife, to your children that, Dad, Mom, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm in charge of this phone. Rubbish. The phone is in charge of you. That's something to confess. Do you, do you, do you still believe that as you wrong somebody in your heart, somebody who has blessed you and benefited you from family to relationships, maybe in church and beyond, that you can worm your way and squirm your way and explain away the envy in your heart that caused you to be defamatory in your thoughts and your words and your deeds for someone who never wronged you in the first place. It could be, it could be a father, it could be a mother, it could be a spouse, it could be a pastor. It could be someone who has been out to bless you but you turn it around that he's been out to hinder me. What a turnaround. Bringing Jesus into anything and everyone changes everything. That's at the heart of it as we listen to this. So we are redeemed people, we redeem hearts. And as we are redeemed, washed clean by Jesus, powered by the Spirit, covered by prayer, in fellowship with each other, redeemed people, we redeem hearts. Now we redeem New relationships. As you look at these three sets of relationships, there's something to take note. The call to submit in the three pairs of relationships are never inverted on the left-hand side. So it is wives who submit, it is children who obey, it is slaves who obey, never the reverse. Yet, there are the mutual duties of ministries by those put in positions of authority. Husbands are to love their wives and not to be harsh with them. Fathers are not to provoke their children and to make them timid. And masters are to be just and fair. Why? Because they would have to give an accounting to who? To their heavenly Lord. So these are our mutual duties and our mutual ministries under the Lord Jesus is never lopsided. So keep that in mind. It's vitally important as we explore the three relationships and we spend the majority of the time where most of us are in terms of wives and husbands, marriage relationships, children and parents, family relationships before we cover Jesus being Lord of our work and workplaces. Wives, submit to your husbands. The first thing to get right is what submission doesn't mean as we explore the word. But I can tell you, after a survey of the Bible, you can be confident of this. A good Bible study, a good study of the biblical passages and principles will tell you what? That submission does not mean the inferiority of the wife. Inferiority in being. Inferiority in worth. Inferiority in, in essence. In that men and women are equally made in God's image. Women, wives, are not subservient in their role and the call to submit is not to blind submission, mindless submission. That means you're asking me to, to, to submit to a husband and I have to stop thinking. I have to stop being rational. It is of course not that. Because if it's a call to irrationality, if it's a call to mindlessness, then it wouldn't be here. This letter is to be read out. And notice the implications, the staggering implications. This is also not a license for the husband's whatever behavior. Why? Why is this the qualification? Why is this the caveat? This is a qualification because chapter 3 actually begins with, we are now to seek the things above, where Christ is seated as the ultimate ruler. So it's not the whatever behavior of the husbands, if we call ourselves Christians, it is the behavior of husbands who sit under the Lordship of Jesus. If we sit under the Lordship of Jesus, chapter 3, verse 5, 
we would then put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, the sexual immorality. I won't be doing two-timing on my gadgets. I won't be do, doing two-timing my eyes or my heart. That's the kind of Christian husband I'm supposed to be. And I'm not supposed to be, to be rude and harsh with my words against my wife. More about that later. So submission to Christian husbands is not submission to a husband's whatever behaviour. It's caveated by this is behaviour in the Lord. Important. So let's explore the word submit. It comes from the Greek word and how it's used here. Sorry for being grammatical, slightly technical. Hupotasomai. And that just means it's middle passive. It's submit yourself willingly and submit yourself freely. And when you read the rest, especially of the New Testament, this is not just a call to wives, Christian wives. This is a call to, to us to follow Jesus because Jesus submitted himself willingly and freely to the Father, the person of the Father, the purposes of the Father for us, even though it cost him his life. So we Christians are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we are to order ourselves under. And you can find many Bible references as you track down this word. This is now the reordering of lives. I do not know what country you're tuning into, uh, tuning in from. Right? Uh, here we are in Singapore. Here in Singapore, I think the majority of the people, it's almost second nature that we now wear a mask in terms of our public health. And what on earth is public health? It is love and pra practical love and concern for our neighbour because the science has proven that this virus is spread by droplets. And so it's a loving thing and a caring thing to wear a mask. Have you not read increasingly, especially in America, or are we just getting fake news out of America, that more and more incidences, if a counter staff at a supermarket tells you to put on a mask, you get sworn at, you get bashed, and a bus driver got shot. What on earth do you call that? They are just little episodes of what? Please don't tell me how to order my life. Please do not tell me whether I can put on a mask, not put on a mask. That is my First Amendment right. A First Amendment right? What about the right to sit under the authority of God? That if this is good for someone else's health, I should actually think about it. And that's where freedom has gone wrong. Because nobody wants in a liberal democracy to sit under anybody. It's equality on a runaway train, on a runaway track. And equality on a runaway track has no sense of orderliness. It's chaos on a massive scale. If you implement that in your life, it's chaos in the family, it's chaos in all relationships, it's chaos in society. Please don't tell me what to do. The way God ordered society is that children need to obey parents. Citizens need to obey rulers. All caveated for our sinfulness. But there is a way to orderliness. And we, the maid, are designed to obey God, our maker and our creator. And we, the redeemed, are designed, safe and empowered by the Spirit of God and the Word of God for obedience to the Lord Jesus. This is how it works out. The ordering of ourselves freely and willingly to others. As in fitting in the Lord. And basically Paul is saying, this equality and yet there's difference, differentiation in role, follows God's created order. For when you read a very parallel, similar epistle written by Paul, there's the expansion of it in Ephesians 5, 23 to 33. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ the head of the church. And so wives, in accepting God's call to submission, you're accepting that submission is God's good idea. This is God's good idea, really? And sometimes as wives, we struggle with this and laugh about this. I got no problem submitting to Jesus as Lord. But I've got a lot of problems submitting to my husband as the head of my household. And Paul's line of thinking is, 
our, our obedience to the Lord Jesus is expressed in our submission to our earthly husbands. It's the same chain of command, though it sounds so hard to obey. This is in line with seeking Christ as our Lord. And so we not just accept that this is God's wonderful blueprint from creation, wonderful blueprint redeemed by the Lord Jesus, and then we are to affirm that our husbands is God's good idea and good leader. God sets him as a leader over me. And many of us as Christian wives could be listening to this and struggling simply to hear that. And I just want to explain that a little bit more in terms of its application. So we have to, we have to decide as Christian wives whether you want to be a helper or a hindrance to your Christian husband. Willing and free will submission makes you a helper. Unwilling, right? And unwilling and obstinate for submission will make you a hindrance. Do you want to be a partner or competitor? Do you want to honour him or to badmouth him? And so often in life, from the moment you wake, you need to ask that question as Christian wives, as wives. Did God make a mistake with this? This is his blueprint. I've told this story many times. I could tell many stories about this. We went for a Christian mission and part of Christian mission while I was training in Bible College. We were supposed to put up a skit and then share a short message about Jesus. Then we said uh, the service was about to begin. We had practiced a skit, a drama. And uh, we turned around, said hello to people. It was welcome time. I said hello to this Australian man in this place in, in Sydney where we were having the mission. And I said, uh, you're new here? He says, yes. Uh, why did you come? I, I, I came because my wife invited me. I said, that's good. My wife invited me. Actually, I'm, I, I don't like church. I don't like Christians. But because her life has changed so much, I said, what do you mean her life has changed so much? Because previously, she used to argue with me about almost everything from morning to night, from the lounge room to the kitchen to the bedroom. Everything about married life, everything about parenting. But ever since she came to this church, something has happened to her. She no longer talks back to me. She no longer argues. And the amount of petty quarrels we have is almost gone. So I just wanted to find out what happened to her. Has she joined a cult group? Now, isn't that amazing? And I can tell you many local stories here. We begin with where and how the Lord has saved us and touched our hearts. So we have to determine. We want to listen to this, that this is God's blueprint for us as Christian wives. What about God's blueprint for us as Christian husbands? But before we go there, all this is done in the four chapters in the context so that we live a life that is worthy of Christ, pleasing to Him, to be Christ-centered, to be Christ-like. We are to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness. We are to put on forbearance. Above all, we put on love. And this command to wives, Christian wives, to submit to their husbands comes under that huge umbrella that the whole universe is under new management. If you call yourself a woman, a wife, living under Jesus, your new management, this must happen willingly and freely. You may not have the most, the easiest husband to live with. You not, may not be as blessed as Mona, my wife. Did, did I just say that? That was to catch your attention. You may not have that. All of us are work in progress. And I've got Mona up here, she will tell you of her own struggles and my own struggles when I speak about loving her sacrificially. But if we submit ourselves willingly, freely to God, as Christian wives, there's a huge difference that brings glory to God. Husbands, love your wives. And so the call to command, we've got to trace back the word. Earlier on in chapter 3, he spoke about, above all, put on love, which binds the whole body of Christ. You, you do not know what binds us together. It is love. It's not ministry. 
It's not a vision. It's not a program. It's not an activity. It's not singing together. It's not working together. It's not meeting in the same place. It's not watching this online. It's when we put on the love of Christ, the sacrificial love, the suffering love, the redeeming love, the saving love of Jesus, now applied to us by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When we surrender to that love and pass on that love, we are bonded together in perfect unity. It is this sacrificial love which provides endless, ceaseless care for the wife. This one, you will find it more fully explained when Paul explains it in Ephesians 5. How does the husband look after the wife? He looks after the wife as if looking after his own body. Whatever you do not know about husbands, we are all very good in Asian culture, Malay culture, Chinese culture, Indian culture, Western culture, African culture. We are very good as men in feeding our faces from morning to night. Many of us as sons have been spoiled by our mothers and spoiled by our, our fathers. Whatever we do not know, we know how to look after ourselves as number one. And so if you listen to scripture here, Paul gives a very practical understanding of this. If you do not know how to love your wives, love her as if you love your own body and feed your own body and feed your own pleasures and feed your own egos. You are to look after your wives with endless, ceaseless care as if looking after your own body as the head of the body. And so we're to seek the welfare of our wives before we seek the, our own welfare. We're to seek the the pleasure and the security of our wives. Whatever you do not know about Jesus, He came and by His initiative, by His sacrifice, He secured our salvation, making us holy and blameless before God. And Ephesians 5 tells us that Christian husbands, we are to follow Jesus in loving our wives. In what way? And I think a Christian husband's role is to firstly be the main or the best teacher of our wives. But we cannot be the main or best teachers of our wives unless we are learners of God's Word. And then, in following Jesus, we are to make our wives feel secure in Christ, in salvation in their life. And one way to make our wives feel secure, I keep saying at all our wedding gatherings, right, wedding uh, solemnizations, Never compare your wife. Never compare your wife's cooking to your mother's cooking. Never compare your wife to your previous girlfriends. Never compare your wives to anybody out there. Never compare full stop, period. And some men have mastered the art of never comparing our wives with our words. But you know what? There is still a danger in our hearts because in our hearts we are dissatisfied with our, our wives and we are comparing them in our hearts. If we don't confess that, we don't own up to that, we don't fess up to that, sooner or later that discontentment in our hearts, that comparison that I still have of a previous girlfriend or current distraction in my office or someone on social media is going to come out with my lies, with, with my, uh, through my hands and my actions and my decisions. So a Christian husband who lives under the new management of Jesus must pray on his knees and practice on his feet that his wife, after God, after Christ, is his number one human love and responsibility. Husbands, we are to love our wives and we are not to be bitter with them or harsh with them. Literally, do not become bitter with their wives and if we become bitter with them, firstly in our hearts, then with our words and our actions, we will in the end embitter them. And what do you get? If the husband is bitter to the wife and we embitter them, you get a bitter, a very bitter marriage. So what's the taste of your marriage from morning to night? How does it taste like? How does it look like? Bitter? How many of you like bitter things? Very few of us, some of us may do. I used to hate bitter things. But through time, I've learned to like bitter God <laughs> because it's good for health. And where did I learn, to, learn to, to, to appreciate bitter God? Because my mother used to boil soup and the soup was a little bit of bitter God in there. It's good for you. It cleanses, it cleanses your body. It's a, 
it detoxes you. She didn't use that language, but Chinese is, is very good. It cleanses the... Is your marriage defined by one word? If your marriage is defined by one word, I give you not a sentence to define your marriage. What is the word that you will use to define your marriage? If your instinctive association with your wife is bitter, anger, negative, you are really in terrible territory, a dangerous situation, a bad situation. And so this is God's call to us not to be angry or incensed against our God-given wives in thought and word and deed. How do you know this? Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, living under His Lordship. And so this was a call to be loving. And how do you become loving? A loving Christian husband expresses that love, experiences that love, by taking the effort to be understanding. For you to be understanding of women, generally, for you to be understanding of your wife specifically, individually, personally, you need what? You need time to listen to her. You need time to enter into her world and to see where she's coming from, the way she's thinking, the way she's feeling. When this was given 2,000 years ago, it was mainly a patriarchal, man-centered society. Modern day, an MCP society. A very male chauvinist, I wouldn't use the P, society, patriarchal society. And if you tell a man as a Roman citizen that he's to love his wife, and to love his wife, he has to understand his wife. 2,000 years ago, and actually in many cultures even today, stretch across the world, right? From the Middle Eastern world to the South Asian world and still in subtle ways in our de democratic worlds, we are still very chauvinistic against women. There is no need. Women are treated as goods and services. They were treated as goods and services 2,000 years ago to be used, to be seen, but never to, be, never to be heard. In two places, kitchen and the bedroom. Goods and services? No. Our Christian wives are not goods and services. They are not products to be used. They are persons to be loved, persons to be understood, persons to be treasured, persons to be taught God's word, persons to be made secure in their salvation in Christ Jesus, persons whom we have a beautiful partnership. And so, what does that mean? That must mean, if you and me want to be good Christian husbands, I firstly have to do, I have to do a few things. Firstly, I must embark on Bible study, learning from God, His Word. Then after that, I must embark on wife study. And for me to study my wife, not to cross-examine her, but to understand her and to understand her as a woman and my God-given wife, I need time to slow that down. And to love our wives is to avoid bitterness at all costs. So by the grace of God, um, I'm okay enough to preach today. Last week I went in for uh, an operation for my hernia, just last Thursday. And uh, Mona, my wife, was with me the whole day in hospital from morning to night because I had scopes done, examined things. And uh, morning to night, she was there. Before the op, after the op. And then after the operation, you know, when you come out of anesthetic, right, you are groggy, it is miserable, you are throwing up, and I was throwing up. I was so appreciative of her, I couldn't stop holding her hand and stroking her hand. And I promised God never to get irritated with her yet again. She took all that time to love me, all that time to understand me, all that time to be with me. She's very good in terms of husband study. She's very good in giving me allowance of time. Have I been that way to her? Even more so as a man who follows Christ and loves Christ? to have no bitterness in my heart towards her at any cost. Very important. 
So as a Christian husband, I have to decide every day whether I want to be loving or unloving each day. Whether I want to be a threat to her or a comfort to her. So all Christian men, right, all men, can I just issue the statement out there? Are you a threat or are you a comfort? Are you a danger or are you an insurer to your wife? Which one? Every time your heart and your eyes strays to another one you should be attracted to, another one you should be fawn about, another one you should be giving two, two thoughts about besides your wife, you are a threat, you are a danger, you are a risk to your marriage, to your covenantal wife. Every time you do not treat your wife with some understanding, you don't back away and say, oh, help me God. I was a little bit rude in my thoughts, a little bit short with my words there. And you learn to normalize it. You learn to worm your way out of that, squirm your way out of your insensitivity of your wife and my wife. Then, friends, we are on really dangerous ground. So every day, take some time to just ask yourself in the morning. You have two choices. I want to be loving or unloving towards my God-given spouse. And how will you may be loving and unloving? the Lord will show you in different ways. Children, obey your parents in everything. Children, this are, the, the word there refers to children who are minors, still living under the parents' roof, subject to the parents' care. In the modern day world, we deal with, um, there's a legal age in which you be turned from a minor to a, a major, an independent in life in which you're fully responsible for yourself. In the West, somewhere it could be 16 years old, it could be 18 years old, it could be 21. The word obey is more absolute than submit. It's very important for us to realize that. And a child's honoring of parents is our first experience of obedience to God. If we ask on earth, God is not visible to our human eyes. How do we obey God? Israel was called as God's nation, and God gave the Ten Commandments, which we read earlier in a responsive reading, when you read the Ten Commandments, begin the first four about obeying God and the next six about our human relationships and one touchstone or cornerstone of all human relationships, the touchstone to family and family is the building block to society. For when family is weak, marriage is weak, then society is weak and on its last licks. And the anchor for strong families is the honouring of parents. Honour your father and mother. So a child's honouring of parents is our first experience of what it means to obey the invisible God. I obey the invisible God by honouring my visible father and mother. It was such a strong mandate that in Israel's life, God said, if you fail this, there's actually an allowance for a very heavy penalty, a death penalty. So a child's obedience in action. I'm going to go to the next one first and come back. This pleases the Lord. So again, it's all our relationships. Between chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 1, in this six verses, about three relationships, right, six to eight verses, the, the word Lord appears seven times, which means every relationship is a tripartite relationship. Every relationship for it to be sound and secure, past, present, future. For every human relationship to be sound and secure, now on your wedding day, going on to the final day in which you say goodbye to your spouse, right? you always need a third party. The third party is Jesus, the Lord of that relationship. So Jesus as Lord of over children, a child's obedience through our life's journey, we obey them when we are minus, still paideia, that's the Greek word, right? From which we get the English word pediatrics. We obey them absolutely when we are minus. We honour them throughout our lives when we become adults. And 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, that we, as those who belong to Christ, should look after our families, beginning with our parents, right, in their old age. So whoever gave you the idea 
that becoming a Christian really is, is the key, the license for us to dishonour parents. That's not there in Scripture. Because so many of us as Asian, um, as Asian parents are so worried. Asian parents are worried when their kids become Christians. At, at least in Confucianism, in, in different religious systems, honouring parents is very high up, if not the highest virtue. But when you become Christians, you become so disobedient. You don't find that in Scripture. Not at all. Unless you're reading your own standard version, OSV. You wrote your own standard version. But according to the NIV or the ESV or the KJV, whatever version you read, here are three principles you could pull out. Very important for us to realize. In Roman society, fathers do not provoke your children. I'm not wrong. There was a law called Patria Protestas. It was a Roman law that gave fathers almost unlimited powers to discipline their children. And if they ever crossed their line to physically harm their children, they would still have the legality of the law or they harm their children out of depravity. They discipline their children out of maliciousness, not out of goodness. There would be the law to caveat and to qualify and protect them. And Paul perhaps has this in the background, and he's saying, as Christian fathers, we are not to do this. As Christian fathers, we are listening to a higher law, the law of God, which is now the law of Christ. And in the law of Christ, a father, a parent's duties in action is, we are not to provoke our children, and the word provoke is we could irritate them, we could frustrate them, we could anger them. And in the words of one commentator, he says, what does provoke mean in practical terms? Anything that harms a child's sensibilities, anything that harms a child's sensitivities. So you could say that is uh, sensibilities, his thinking part, like his cognitive part. Sensitivities is his affectionate part. And sometimes in our sinful nature, in our fallen nature, we cross the line and we said, you know, the couple, that pinching with pliers, of course, that's totally out. But sometimes in a moment of meltdown, we pinch, we shove, we, we beat. And all that is irrational, insensible to the sensitivities and the sensibilities of a child. The unfair comparison and their unreasonable demands that makes a child lose heart. What is unfair comparison? Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your cousin? Right? Why can't you be more like... And your answer is, because I'm not my brother. Because I'm not my cousin. Because if you gave that answer, you'll be in deep trouble. But all parents, it's very important for us to realise that God, this is my God-given child, and part of me raising this child is to love him and to treat him or her as a unique child given by God. Unique child given by God. So you and me have to decide whether you want to be a spirit crusher or a child cheerleader. Not crushing their spirit, but stirring their spirit, strengthening their spirits and say, keep going, though it looks pretty rough. I just read one in our papers of Joshua Lim. And Joshua Lim was born with a motor neuron disease. Um, I've, I don't know how to pronounce it. Duchenne, Duchenne, motor neuron. And very few of them will live past their mid-twenties to their thirties. But through all of what he suffered, right, the, all the challenges that he can't clothe himself, he can't feed himself, he can't move around, yet, yet he was determined to excel in school and he excelled. He excelled all the way to getting a merit in his diploma and he now wants to go on to get his master's and when asked in that one-page interview, that uh, one-page interview in our Straits Times, what was at the heart of his faith, uh, at the heart of his strength, was his faith in God. And the one that is the anchor of that faith is actually his mother, 
oozing out. His father oozing out with the love of God, just loving him and just caring for him no matter what, just giving him their cheerleaders. And then when you read that story of Joshua, it's not just that him was born this way, but his elder brother, if not wrong, Norman was born this way. And Norman passed away at 28 years old. In that article, of many words and many paragraphs, they had just one line. The anchor of their life is their Christian faith. Just one line. The anchor of their life through all these challenges, insurmountable, humanly insurmountable, is their Christian faith. It is this one line of their one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that changes everything. Changes everything about honouring, changes everything about parenting, that we are mutual cheerleaders of each other. And so, finally, and I have to be brief here with slaves, the new attitude of slaves, twice he says, you are not to be man-pleasers, you are not to be man-pleasers. Don't just behave rightly when your master's eye is on you. You are to be Christ-pleasers, God-pleasers. Serve your earthly masters as is serving your heavenly Lord. Actually, same instructions for wives to husbands, for children to parents. And this is the massive change of heart. Let me just give a caveat, a qualifier here. With the first two, they are God-given, God-created relationships. Husband, wives, parent, children. This one is a man-made relationship. And so it's not an endorsement of the institution of slavery. But notice Paul and Apostles thought this, not so much for them to go and overthrow this institution, but to redeem their relationships and change, not so much the institution, but change the way they witness as they are at this moment trapped in this. And it says, it's by changing hearts and relationships. New attitude of masters, you treat them justly, you treat them fairly, you are a master, but you're not a free agent. You are accountable to the heavenly Lord. So that's the danger of all masters. The danger of all masters is to think that 24-7, nobody knows what's happening. I just want to perhaps give us a warning here in much of Asia where we have domestic helpers. Our domestic helpers are not to be treated as slaves. And we understand slavery in the Roman world Slavery in the Roman world, the slaves did have rights, legal rights that protected them. Sometimes I hear with great concern, right? and authorities have to remind us that our domestic helpers need a day off. And now during this COVID-19, can you please remind yourselves, especially if you are Christian employers, that your domestic helpers are made in God's image, redeemed in Christ, Equal in creation, equal in sin, equal in our Saviour, equal in salvation, equal in salvation blessings. And one of the great witnesses to them is that you are boss temporarily, but you answer up to Jesus and you're going to be answering up to how you treated your domestic helper. I want to say to those in ARPC, I've been so encouraged significantly, majority of times, that so many of our domestic helpers have come to saving faith by living under your household. As you try, not perfectly, but sincerely, to be accountable to your heavenly Lord. And so what does that mean? This is radical faith. All this pleases the Lord. The Jesus-centered life is the, is the gold standard of all our relationships. Christ rules my heart. Changes the way I behave as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a, as a father, as an as a, as a employee, as a, as a boss. And so which areas of your life has changed? Which area of your life has not changed? And you need to ask yourself, why? Why? Are you living with the horrors of a disconnected life? That on the surface we say we belong to God, but underneath there is no change. There is no such thing we've been saying in this series as a Christianity with no con consequence. There is church going without consequence. You are just a mere church goer. 
But there is no such thing as a Christ believer and a Christ follower with no changes in our life. Because believing in Christ brings that change. And so in ending, we want to ask questions. The horror of our disconnected life is that if you do not have a living relationship with Jesus, you're actually disconnected with Him as your head. Then you relate to each other by caricature. <coughs> caricature, racial caricature, all Chinese are like that, all Indians are like that, all foreigners are like that, all locals are like that, all men are like that, all women are like that, all, you just go down the line. All children are like that, all parents are like that. You're always like that, you never change. Two things that must never be part of your thought pattern and your vocabulary. Must repent after listening to this sermon. You're always like that, you'll never change are two things we have to repent of. That's a disconnected life. But a reconciled life through the precious work of Jesus and the ongoing power of the Holy Spirit is the beauty of the reconnected life. I now relate to others by being forgiven by Christ, set free by Christ, to no longer live for self, but to live for Him and to live for others. And I won't want to settle for anything less Never get used to the left-hand side. You're always like that. Don't settle for that. You'll never change. Don't settle for that. If right now you're listening to this as a family and you have embarked on the left-hand side and that describes your relationship, that describes your heart, then it's time to repent and change. Christ can change me before He changes you because my prayer must be, help me God, change me before you make you you use me to change my wife Mona, to change my children, to change my pastors and my elders and my deacons, to use me as an instrument of change. I want to say to you how encouraged I've been since the operation last week. There were many of you heard about it. We didn't put it out in many places, but it was prayed for in the service before the sermon. And you just send endless messages send endless cards, you send endless gifts. And that's why I'm here. Because many of your endless gifts were um, bird's nest, chicken essence, and I drank lots of them. Whether I'm showing it, but the energy level in me. And so a combination of spiritual healing, physical healing, and your healing. And a significant number of people who send those gifts, personally came to give us those gifts, are people whose lives, when we came to know you, or you came to seek help in some way personally, whether you were single, whether your marriage was on the rocks, whether your family had totally fallen apart, whether your teenager was now gone or suffering depression and it, the future looked so bleak. <laughs> Pastor Chris, it was such a bright boy. She's such a bright girl. I don't know what happened to her. She mixed around with the wrong friends. He, I don't know what patterns he's picked up on his phone. It looked so desperate. It looked so bad. But as we brought Christ into your life, that's all we did. Read God's Word, taught you God's Word, taught you these passages. That wives can submit willingly, that husbands can love sacrificially. I can treat my wife as number one and that will change things. That children, you don't have to put your parents on hold. You don't have to neglect them. You don't have to abuse them. You don't have to, be, you don't have to do all those things. You can love your benevolent father. You can love your loving mother in return. That we can be new people. And you come thanking us with cards, just thanking God that somewhere along the line He used us to preach the gospel and minister Christ to your hearts. So for anything else, I'm thankful for that operation because it shows me that Jesus is alive in your heart and the love of Jesus is alive in your heart. And we thank God and praise God for that. Let's turn to God in prayer before we sing our closing song that believing in Jesus makes all the difference. We pause before you, Heavenly Father, for not just a moment of humility, but for a, life, a lifetime of humility, as rightly we must. To say sorry for being such proud rebels and being such proud and stubborn rebels 
We think we are in charge of our lives. We think that the good life is when we don't need to acknowledge you and we can deal with the consequences of our disconnected life. But we become so toxic in our lives because we have been alienated from you, hostile towards you, hostile towards others, and addicted to a sinful life. But we thank you that in your unchanging love, you have reconciled us. And in reconciling us, you have taken us, taken away from us the venom, the poison, the toxins, and given us the beauty and the purification that is there in Christ and through Christ. As we listen to this, may we grasp and bow in humility and say that believing in Jesus, bringing, bringing Christ into any situation, into any heart, changes everything and everyone. That is the power of the gospel. We pray for this change for your glory. Amen.